Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences. Carl J. Cox here. I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. 40 Strategy is built to make strategy work for small to medium-sized businesses and organizations by designing world-class strategic plans, but just as important, help keeping them accountable to get it done. Go to 40strategy.com to learn more. We're really excited. We've recently launched strategy courses. These are live, in-person, between four and eight CEOs, executives, entrepreneurs who are meeting together and helping to design their three-year strategic plan and designing it the right way. So if you want to learn more about that, once again, go to 40strategy.com. And finally, we're so excited. Lost the CEO has finally come out a two and a half year process of publishing this book. We're really excited. The feedback we have been getting is amazing. Please go out to amazon.com. You can go to Audible, um, even barnesandnoble.com to get a copy for yourself. If you would like a signed copy, please reach out to me directly at carljcox at 40strategy.com. I'd like to do a shout out from time to time. The shout out goes to Eric Wood. He's the CEO of X-Plane and author of the Strategy Activation Playbook. And he introduced us to Lisa Schwartz, who is our guest today. She's the chief operating officer with the executive officer she works with and other members of the senior executive team to pinpoint changes in Mathematica's business context and determine how the organization will adapt to stay strong and competitive. She's been a researcher first for nearly a de- decade with Mathematica, and then she moved into their management team, and as she's moved up to the ranks of CEO through her great work that he's, she has done. She also, um, she didn't want to share with me, but I did some research, and she actually has her PhD in philosophy and cognitive development from the University of Maryland. So, Lisa, welcome to the Measures podcast. Hi, it's great to be here and congrats on the book. Can I do a quick shout out for you? I also want to just to congratulate you for your uh, recently a, a great achievement of being named the growth CEO of the year. That is fantastic. So I am uh, I'm really honored to be here with you today. Thank you. Very kind of you to mention that. Thank you so much. So Lisa, let's talk about, let's talk about first your company. Yep. Uh, how tell us more about Mathematica for those who aren't familiar with it? What do you do? How are you making a difference in the world? Yeah, so Mathematica is a truly unique and incredible company. So our mission, our purpose is to help shape an equitable and just world to try to improve public well-being around the globe. And we do that by creating, sharing, interpreting, disseminating evidence so that policymakers, program operators, foundations that might be making grants, they can all make better decisions that will make for better programs, that will make for better outcomes for the most vulnerable among us. So that's who we are. Um, Can I tell you a quick origin story about Mathematica? Because there's elements of it that are really important to sort of who we are in the world today. So Mathematica started in 1958. So we've been around for a pretty long time. We were founded by a gentleman named Oscar Morgenstern. He was a a professor at Princeton University. 
1958, Oscar Morgenstern has this vision that the increased power of computing coupled with the rigorous methods of mathematics and economics could be brought together to solve social problems. That is the root of who we are, and it is a powerful root that continues through to this day. So we are still about harnessing technology and data to solve the most complex problems facing society. So that's our, that's our root. There's also, um, I think I'd also add, there's an important story in it about being part of an academic community to start with. So Oscar started it, a bunch of other academics come on over and they're gonna make a difference in the world, but they're gonna make a difference in the world with that same sense of um, academic autonomy. So Mathematica has never been an in, uh, profit maximizing company, even really successful. But what drives us is, are we being asked to give the truth? We won't work for anybody that is not interested in learning what the evidence has to say. We want to be in control of our destiny. We want that academic freedom to um, solve the problems that we think are most important. So that's still true of us today. So that's who we are. I love that. And before we, before we go into that, I want to go back to your career just for a moment. <laughs> sure. So, so you, once again, you start out researcher, you, you join, join this organization and you, you do what you love, which is research, right? Clearly you've been doing that for a long period of time and you have a passion around that. And then you had the opportunity to get into management and, and move through that. So when, when the first time when you had what I call significant management responsibilities, yeah. tell us about your experience with that. And then you've clearly moved up the ranks um, to become now the, the CEO within the organization. Yeah. What did you have to change about who you were and what you were doing so you can be the best leader that you can be? I love this question. Yeah, I love this question. So. I am somebody who believes that there are many, many paths in life and many, many paths to leadership. And so my whole career has been a story of, I start down one path, I'm like, that's not the path. And I look around and step onto another one. So when I was getting my PhD, I believed that what I was gonna be was an academic. I wanted to go to mostly a teaching college I wanted to stand in that classroom and turn on young minds and get them excited about cognition. <laughs> My specialty was in aging and adult development, so I wanted them to get excited about old people and cognition. That's what I wanted to do. And I hadn't planned on doing anything else. I had no backup. That was, that was the path. And about four years in, I realized I probably don't want to spend my life around 20-year-olds, no offense to the 20-year-olds out there, but I was going to keep getting older and they weren't. So I didn't want to do that. And academia really wasn't for me in the long run. So I'm going to make this a quick story, but it's a good one. I'm driving home one day and I'm listening to the radio and there's an ad on the radio for a company that was then called Management Recruiters International. And I called them when I got home because of course we didn't have cell phones. So I called them and uh, this woman picked up the phone and I said to her, okay, I have two passions. I love words. So my truest, most abiding love is books and language and words. I love words. And I have this PhD in cognitive psychology and I don't know what to do. 
And she suggested that I look into survey research. And I had no idea there was such a thing called survey research. And so she gave me the names of some people to call and I called them and got hired at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, on and on and on we go. 10 years later, 10 years later, that same woman, without remembering who I was, was recruiting for Mathematica's Next Generation Leaders. And she happened to call me and said, there's a company in Princeton, New Jersey, that's wanting to talk with you. And so I got over my uh, bias against New Jersey and agreed just to talk with them. And, um, and here I am. So my story is really one of, of stepping off and onto new paths. So when I got to Mathematica, I had already done some management stuff. I'd always um, have a team at least that I was working with, whether that was a project team or when I was in grad school, I hired a bunch of undergrads to do my dissertation for me, basically. So I always had that skill of just sort of getting people rallied around a project, a problem, et cetera, and moving things forward. So I, you know, when I got here, I moved into like an associate director's role, eventually I was directing a group of about 150 social scientists. And I didn't really have to change that much in terms of who I was as a person. It was fairly natural for me to want to hear people's perspectives, jointly decide things. All that was fairly normal for me. But there's this other part of me that people would describe either as uh, a change maker or someone who can't leave well enough alone. And along the way, I kept kind of picking up these little projects, these little improvement projects on behalf of the organization, S all kinds of things. I won't go into them. But eventually, I had this very full plate of these special improvement projects that were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and this department of 150 people. And our CEO asked me if I would partner with our CIO to build an information management system. I went into the CEO's office and I said a thing that no business book would ever advise you to say, which was, I know that I'm on a clear path to management here and I like it very much, but there are a lot of people who can manage this 150 person department. And there are not a lot of people who like to step right into the messy, most ambiguous stuff and pull people from all over the organization and bring them together and make them into a high-performing team and drive through that ambiguity to a better thing on the other side. And I think that should be my full-time job. And so <laughs> we created a title. I was the vice president then for business practice, which you know meant nothing other than this is what Lisa's gonna do. And so that's how I ascended up the rank. So rather than change myself, I found ways to bring who I was becoming more and more of into the workplace and leverage it for the good of the organization. I love that. <laughs> I love it how you have, it seems like to me, you've been willing to seek problems, right? And, and then solve them, but not just solve them okay, but try to get them to excellence, which is you know, there's sometimes this thing of people say sometimes good is the, you know, the enemy of great. And I, I, would you agree with that statement when it comes to how you want to design things or are you okay at times to, to settle, so to speak? Yeah, I'm, I think that's a false dichotomy. <laughs> oh, interesting. Tell me why. So explain that. I think that I want to have a, I want to have a view of excellence. 
right? As I'm getting closer to clearing the fog of ambiguity, I want to have a vision of what excellence can be. And I want to be pragmatic about how we're going to get there because we're not going to get there in a straight line. You never do. And so sometimes I think it's okay to settle for the thing that just makes you a little bit better, but don't lose sight of how you're going to keep going to get towards excellence. I am not a fan of uh, don't let, what is that expression? Don't let, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah. Okay. Don't let perfect be the enemy of the good, but boy, strive for great, strive for great, strive for excellence. Yeah. No, I love that. I love the flaw. I, I think it is important to strive for excellence, right. And, and to continue to move in the right direction to serving. There's always this balance, right. Of what our strengths are versus what others and what should we do. And so many other, those are like those delegation questions we have as yeah. we, are assigning uh, strategic responsibilities in, in an organization. So we were having a fun discussion prior, you know, in our pre-call or right prior to recording this episode of people. Yeah, right? people. <laughs> people, right? So, so um, I, I always like saying in, in strategy, things don't move forward if you cannot change your people, process, and systems or modify them to get your next level because we, we will hold ourselves back, but things are changing at such an accelerated rate. It's different than it was beforehand. So we had the kind of top of mind issue of what are you seeing right now that maybe been different than maybe let's say go back to 2019, you know, pre COVID. What are you seeing that's different now today as you're managing leading teams and, and the responses you're getting, that's making it perhaps more difficult than it used to be. Well, yeah. You know, I, I think there was a moment at the beginning of COVID where we were all actually more connected as human beings than we have ever, ever been. I can remember a feeling of sitting in my little makeshift home office and looking out the window and feeling my heart just crack wide open because everybody everywhere was suffering in exactly the same ways, right? Every one of us. And in some ways that was a very powerful accelerant for something that I was trying to bring more into our organization, which has been really focused on the quality of the deliverables, the quality of the methods that we use. And I've been working very hard the past few years to also make us as determined and high quality about the client experience of working with us. So I was in this place of feeling very human and connected. And I watched, I watched my colleagues lean all the way in because if ever you wanted to help in whatever way you could help someone, that was the time. So that was pretty amazing. I think we people, one of our great strengths is how resilient and adaptable we are. And our great resilience and our great adaptability also let us accept this adjust. We had to adjust to this new weird world that we were living in. But that adjustment has come at so much cost. I have no idea how to design a post-pandemic employee experience that can replicate that feeling that I had when I joined Mathematica of this palpable energy that was about 
you know, there's a part of Mathematica that's a very much a collective, one for all and all for one. We're 100% employee owned, right? There's a lot that's about how we all help each other. I don't, I don't know how to make that so when I have 1,800 people all over the place who may never be in the same location with one another ever. So it's, it's real and it's hard. It's really hard. I don't, I don't know how you do it. I think that um, it's also changed expectations of leaders. I think gone are the days of the, you know, we want the, we want the, <laughs> no offense, no, no offense intended. I want the paternalistic leader who's going to make me feel like they're confident and competent and everything's under control. Yeah, except when you can tell that things are not. And it's the, you know, it's the era of compassionate leadership, of, of caring about the people that you work with, the people that you work for. We'll see where it goes. It could be a pretty amazing moment. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> and, and what's interesting about this is, and had some discussions recently and in, in some presentations where there's this fascinating like uh, transformation of, of you go back, you know, generationally in the United States, you know, we have our greatest generation, right. Where that lived through the depression and they had nothing. And then they had a fight in world war two and they came out of it with this scarcity mindset of, we need to do whatever it takes to make things work. Right. Yeah. And then you had the baby boom generation, which their parents was this greatest generation. And, and, there was a certain way of still, once again, in a scarcity mindset of you have to pull up your bootstraps and you have to work. You go into the the next generation, right? And 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 uh, that generation, which I'm a part of, is the, was the first, if you may, full generation in the United States, for the most part, or is a generation, first generation of abundance. And now in our 30 and under group, you now are in the second generation of full abundance. They don't, I'm not saying once again, that everybody has been crafted with a silver spoon, but compared to what we have today versus what we had in 1945, it's significant, right? Our ability to have, and, and I, what I'm observing and seeing is that because of this mindset, we, we think more about what's important around the world and, and the type of organizations that we work for and the purposes that we have versus I just need to pay for the mortgage. Yeah. Right. And, and so, and, and more and more, right. Of this, of people are coming through the workforce and, and they want to see things differently. They want to work with purpose and they want to do things. So I'm curious within Mathematica, what are you doing as a leader to help connect and lead more with people that it's not just about, and granted, you come with a company that that's about purpose, yeah. but, but it's even deeper than that, right. Of, of other things. So, so how, what are you doing? What type of strategies and tactics are you using to help create that connection? So people continuously find the set of purpose and why, and, and, and how to stay connected in this very disconnected world that we're, we're living in. Yeah. Another, another great question. We do have a leg up, I think, because we have always had a very deep, compelling purpose, and we've always attracted people who are coming for that mission. 
They're coming because they believe what we believe. And you are 100% right about generational differences and about the whole picture of life, not work-life balance, right? But there's all of these parts of my life and I want those parts to all work in a way that's good for me. <laughs> that's, that's tough. We are experimenting with, a, I think, a few things that um, hopefully will lead us in some good directions. So, you know, we didn't start our strategic planning process. We, did, we go in four-year cycles. So we're in the last year of our, next year is the last year of our, our, this current cycle. We didn't go into it thinking that we were going to need to focus on the hybrid work experience of our employees, right? We didn't have that on our radar. But that became the most important thing to focus on. And so, you know, we first have done some of the tactical things that, you know, we still have some offices. So we got people who are coming in co-located so you can feel a little bit of community. We're starting to explore working with other co-working spaces, right? So we're doing some of those kinds of things to start to figure out how can we create community from proximity? Because proximity has always been the linchpin of community. And then we have to do some other things that we're going to need to design that are going to be more about connectivity around shared activities, thinking about ways that you can recreate the water cooler. So we have a program that our HR team created called Coffee with Colleagues, where you get randomly matched with somebody for a 15 minute conversation. And for someone like me, it's been a great opportunity to connect with our you know, early career staff who otherwise I probably would not get a chance to meet. So we're doing some of those kinds of things, but I think what people are really looking for, is, I think, is this ability to sort of design your day in a way that balances out for you as a person, your energetic capacity, your family demands, your self-care routines, all the stuff that like someone from our generation might think like, I have to cram all that in before the work starts in the morning. <laughs> um, they want to have it more fully present. And I think we're going to have to figure out ways to allow for a more bespoke employee experience. We're going to have to. I think it's not very different from what customers expect right? I've given you a ton of information about me. I expect you to use it to benefit me, to remember who I am and create the experience that I want when I'm at your hotel, when I'm at your restaurant, wherever I might be. I think our employees are starting to feel the same way. I am telling you who I am as a person, and I want you to create the work experience that works best for me. Now, how an organization operates in that way is another story, but um, we're going to have to we're going to have to experiment with some of that. I think Hewlett Packard, this is years and years ago, had a great um, great part of their performance review process where it was totally acceptable to say, you know what, there's just a lot going on in my family right now. And this is not going to be a year for me to have any stretch goals or kill it. I just need to show up and do my job because I really need to be focused over here. And you could do that without any repercussions. And then you could come back the next year and you could be like, you know what? I'm good to go. This is the year that I'm shooting for that promotion. And I think those kinds of programs are going to have to start to take place across all of our companies. That's uh, really good insights that you said there of one is 
looking at your employees differently, more like a customer. I think that, I think that was a really interesting insight. You know, it's mm-hmm. not actually something I typically hear that exact, you know, uh, if you may metaphor and because the, the irony is our employees are almost as scarce as customers. Yeah. And, and because of the demographic restrictions that we will have just due to, we're not a growing, we're not growing at the same rate we used to. Yeah. Um, it's going to be you know more competitive. It's going to t- continue to be more competitive uh, as it has in, in the future. So, so now I want to flip. I'm, I'm curious because we, we talked about this a little bit, but I'm more curious from what you're doing. So generative AI and, and I, you know, your mathematical models, right? You've been doing models for years. So it's not like you're new to this. Yeah. Are you finding there's more of a need for humans or less <laughs> with your discernment or your analysis that we have to do? Oh, so, so I think there's a need for more humanness. <laughs> so, um, you know, ge- so generative AI, it's coming for the smart people, right? <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna take all the stuff that we have put out there in the world and just be like yep i've pulled out all the patterns from all the things these smart people have published and here is your here is your in the box part of it right so what can't it do okay can do sentiment analysis of what i wrote blah 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 what it can't do i don't think yet and i hope not for a while is connect with empathy, right? To, to, yes, here's what the smart people are saying, but now let's understand your context. Let's understand the, whomever it might be, the customers you're trying to serve. In my world, it would be, let's try to understand the beneficiaries of this program in this location whose lives we're trying to improve. And let's really push ourselves to connect on a much deeper level so that we can interpret and apply what's been generated in a way that's going to work here. So I think there's an amp, it goes back to that compassionate leadership, right? It's an amplification of head in service to heart and really, um, really focus on the heart part of being people. Yeah, I think it, you know, it's interesting. There's, well, once again, there's more data and more information. You know, it continues to grow at an exponential rate for sure. But I remember in my CFO days, we would have all the data together and we'd present it to the board. And the, the board data was extraordinarily clear. Don't move forward with this action, any strategic initiative anymore. It's not working. Mm. But the emotion of humans kept it going because they believed, right? Yeah. And, and so I, I, what I said for many years is uh, we're going to get all the, the facts together to make an emotional decision because we still have to press, we still have to press a button. We still have to make an action. We still have to make a decision. And I think the worst thing I've seen over the years going pre-generative AI, just even like BI work was analysis paralysis. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, it appears to me that this is going to, information's going way beyond what our human brains, most of us can handle. All of us, way beyond what all of us can handle. 
Right. And so the the irony, I think, behind all this is the need for leaders to take the right data and information to actually create action. Yeah. So how, with all this data, and people feel like data is not true, right? Because there's so much of it. Yeah. What, what things are you doing? And even with your clients, right? You mentioned beforehand, your, your goal is to provide them the right information, not the information they're looking for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if you may, I, and forgive me, I don't even want to bring this up, but there was data within COVID. And for some, well, frankly, three plus years later today, they're still with confidence wearing a mask, right? Yep. And, and then there's others that are like, felt they should have never wore a mask, same data. Yeah. Right? So that's the part that I think is hard is when you have a data set that is true. The question is what actions should we be taking based on that same data set? Because that is still emotion, right? That's determining which direction we should go. And, and let's go back to the, or, or, an organization, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, great. We we think we could go from 20 to 40% in a market. Just I'm just doing more like a, a typical yep. business, right? Or mm-hmm. or we we have the ability to increase literacy by doing these actions, but we still won't do. Okay, you packed like a thousand questions into that. <laughs> so let me see if I can unpack some of them. So I think, you know, on the, I love the example of like all of the numbers in front of the board are saying kill this strategic initiative. But the humans who are running the strategic initiative are like, yeah, we're going to just keep going anyway. Because either or both, right, they're committed, they believe, they believe it's the right thing to do, even though the numbers are telling them a different story. Co- as a cognitive psychologist, right, there's also something called loss aversion bias, which is just the thing in our brains, right? I have invested time and energy and the more time and energy I have invested in something, the less I am going to be able to take in information (laughs) that tells me that this is not a good thing to put your time into. So all of those things are going on. True. That's all true. (laughs) That's all true. And so I think that leaders have to make the call. You have to make the call. And maybe your call is, all right, what would need to be true? Our data right now are telling us this is not going the way we thought it should go. We should kill it. What would need to be true for us to continue? And then I want to design the quickest experiment, the fastest way that I can figure out to answer that question. Is that condition true? Because if that condition is true, maybe we should keep going. Maybe we just haven't been going about it in the right way. So I wanna, I wanna talk about that for a second. The other piece is there's a difference between data and evidence, right? Data, that's just an observation, right? It should just be a fact. <laughs> now we live in a world where that's harder to tell sometimes and that's a problem, but it's just an observation in and of itself. It has no value. I have brown hair. It's a data point, it doesn't tell you anything. Evidence is really about trying to answer a question. It is what is the hypothesis that I have and what does the best available evidence analyzed with the best possible methods within the constraints that we're working in, 
tell me I should do? We just had a presentation to our board where we were talking about, you know, policy is increasingly adding work requirements to safety net programs. So if you're going to get supplemental nutrition, you need to participate in some type of employment and training program. I haven't, I'm not, these are just my own opinions that I'm saying, but like, on the surface, that seems like a really good idea. I believe that people should work and be self-sufficient and that that's something that's a positive thing on a whole lot of levels for people. Well, let's then look at, are we designing those employment and training programs in a way that the evidence says you are more likely to get a meaningful career and earn a decent living wage as a result of having participated in it? So I want to make an evidence-based decision. I don't care that you've gone to 15 work workshops. That's the data. Got it. Got it. That's great. Okay. So we only have a few <laughs> minutes. We, oh my this gosh. This is one of these <laughs> wonderful conversations and I, I don't want it to end, but here we are. Yeah. So let's just briefly on the personal side, sure. what, what habits do you do consistently to achieve your best performance? So many, so, so many. Okay. <laughs> Here's the morning routine. The morning routine starts with meditation, some journaling, a little bit of gratitude, a little bit of stretching and yoga. I think that's it. <laughs> that's part of it. I have to get some form of physical exercise every single day. I am somebody who must get out of my head and just be in my body to let myself absorb things. So, always that. Um, and I try to end the evening with another version of gratitude to just reflect on the day and think about the good things that happened. We are wired, wired, wired to only see the negative and absorb it and project it. But our brains are magic because we can rewire them just by what we put our attention to. And so I am intentionally trying to be uh, in that positive space. Those are the things that I do. And I will just add reflective practice if you do nothing else, take a few minutes at the end of your day or your end of your week to reflect on what went well, what didn't, and what do you want to do differently next week so that you can put something into practice and see how it goes. Fantastic. No, that's really good. Great examples. And so how then do you measure success in your personal life? Yeah. Two words come to mind integrity and generosity. So the first is, and this is a, a steal from Glennon Doyle's podcast, We Can Do Hard Things, but she talks about integrity as what I am thinking and feeling on the inside matches what I am saying and doing on the outside. And that sounds simple, but it's very hard in our culture and with our social norms. So I, that's one of my measures is, am I acting with integrity? The second generosity is I really believe that we have an obligation to give to others that which we, we may have lacked. And so I try in my, within my family, the people that I meet to try to show up for them in a way that I wish others had shown up for me. And those are my two most important measures. So those are great answers. What is a book or two that you recommend for our audience? Okay, I love novels. And I love memoirs. So I'm going to give you a memoir that is really about leadership. And if you haven't read 
James Doty's Into the Magic Shop. It is magnificent. Uh, he himself is a neurosurgeon who then went on to found the Center for the Study of Compassion at Stanford University. And it is his journey with meditation, but it's also his journey of becoming a head and heart leader. It's a beautiful book. Lisa, thank you so much for all these insights. How can people, if they want to connect or learn more about uh, what Mathematica is doing or connect with you, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, uh, connect with me. You can email me. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. We can put my email directly into the show notes. Um, and if you want to learn about Mathematica, probably the best way, uh, you know, go to our website, but we have a podcast called On the Evidence that will really give you a flavor for sort of who we are as a company and what we do. It's a great podcast and we just celebrated our 100th episode. Uh, congratulations. That is Thank very you. exciting. So Lisa, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Measure Success podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's been great talking with you and I too could have just kept right on going. So I hope we get the chance to catch up again soon. Absolutely. And to everyone else who's listening, uh, thank you so much for spending your time and listening and hearing to Lisa's wisdom and what they're doing at Mathematica. I think it's absolutely incredible. And I encourage you, you know, if this show has been something that you love, please go out and continue the ratings uh, that that helps continue us to grow in the podcast. We're in the top two and a half percent right now, global podcast, and we're continuing that climb to move on up. So we appreciate your support. That's the way that we give this for free. And we just, that's our ask for generosity and kind, if you could give that as well. As well. So with that, um, as we always like to say, wishing you the very best and measuring your success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success Podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.